0: You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest, probably one of the top researchers in circadian medicine on the planet, uh, Dr. Sachin Panda. He's a professor at the Salk Institute in California. His lab studies how circadian rhythm in metabolism is an integral part of metabolic health and longevity. In preclinical animal models, he discovered that consuming all calories within a consistent 8 to 12 hour or time restricted feeding can sustain daily rhythms in anabolic and catabolic metabolism. Such temporal regulation of metabolism can prevent and reverse chronic disease and increase lifespan. That's what we're going to talk about today is how to re- use your rhythms, your lifestyle, to prevent and reverse chronic disease and increase lifespan. To translate his preclinical findings to improve human health, he's developed a really cool app called My Circadian Clock, which you can get, it's called My Circadian Clock, get that app. The app is being used to study epidemiology of daily patterns of activity, sleep and food intake, and run parallel interventional studies to test the impact of time-restricted feeding on various chronic diseases. He also wrote a phenomenal book called the circadian code. I really highly recommend you all pick up this book. It's a, it's a, it's a book you literally can't put down. And once you put it down, you're going to want to keep going back to it because the, the information about, you know, the ancient understanding of Ayurveda being in sync with the natural cycles of nature, ayurveda 101 we call it is completely validated by dr sachin Pandra's book the circadian code please pick that up dr sachin so good to meet you thanks for being here
0: thank you and uh, i'm really glad to be here
1: so um uh, you know i wanted to before we dive into time restricted eating which i know that's a big piece of your work i wondered if if there was anything you know since you wrote this book in 2018 i wonder is there anything that's kind of new and topical in your world that you're researching that's really cutting edge that you do you go home at night thinking about
0: later on since uh, i wrote the book i uh, realized that uh, in the us alone almost half of the adult population um, has hypertension or high blood pressure and also nearly half of the adult population is pre-diabetic or diabetic. Okay. Uh, so many of our studies uh, in both animal models and humans have shown that time-restricted eating, which is now popular as intermittent fasting, can prevent and better manage pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So that's why just recently, last November, I wrote another book, The Circadian Diabetes Code, that incorporates many recent research findings in this field um, uh, for for everybody. So uh, that's called the circadian diabetes code. And at the same time, right now, if you look at clinicaltrial.gov or its equivalent uh, websites that track clinical trials around the world, we find that nearly 100 clinical trials under uh, going on right now that there's the impact of time restricted eating to prevent or manage um, various diseases, starting from pre-diabetes, diabetes, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, cardiac rehab, various forms of cancer, um, and many more. So I'm super excited. And I think we are at the beginning phase of this revolution where we'll have a lot of um rigorous clinical trial on eating pattern intervention and its power in producing beneficial health impact with or without medication and many of these studies are with uh, allopathic uh, or the modern medication and some of them are without so i'm super excited and looking forward to many of these results to come in next few months or years
1: So, you know, when you when you read your book and and listen to you, you you know, um, it's like the um, like you found, you know, the fountain of youth the 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 panacea. All we have to do is go to bed early, wake up, live in sync with these natural cycles. And all of a sudden our biologicals click in and everything gets so much, uh, so much better. And so I'm I'm curious, um, uh, you know, how is it that you know, living this healthy lifestyle can be so profound and impact so many different organs and organ systems in the body.
0: Yeah. So we humans and also other animals and plants on this planet, we evolved and we have been living on this planet for 200,000 years with these rhythms. And the reason why we have circadian rhythms is for our brain and body to adapt to predictable changes in light, temperature, food availability, predators, and all these factors that actually affected our ancestors, hunter gatherers, when we lived in nature. So that means for 200,000 years, there is strong selection pressure to have these rhythms. So, accordingly, our DNA essentially encodes this timing mechanism. So that every gene in our genome, every hormone, every enzyme that we can think of uh, is known to have these rhythms in at least one organ in our body. So over the last 150 years when industrial revolution started, then we realized that staying awake late into the night and being a little bit more productive for a few days uh, was the key to Accumulate wealth and improve your status in the society and increase productivity, etc. So, the concept of shift work started almost 150 years ago. And if you think of 100 years ago, very few people uh, like cops and firefighters or uh, healthcare professionals who are giving care to really sick ones—they were the only ones who were breaking their circadian rhythms and caring for others. But I think now we have reached a point where almost every adult goes through at least four to 10 years of circadian rhythm disruption in the adulthood, starting from high school onwards, when they have to stay awake past midnight and they have to when they're staying awake past midnight, the conventional wisdom in the society is as long as your eyes are open your mouth should be open So people think that if they don't eat in every two to three hours their body cannot function which is not true so as a result we are now going through really a pandemic of circadian rhythm disruption and everyone we know even including ourselves i mean i know i uh, very often i break my rhythm so, I call it the late and asbestos moment in our anthropogenic world because we have built this anthropogenic world, our lifestyle, our habit around the idea that a body is like a car. It can go at the, it can start and go at 60 miles an hour any time of the day. But what we forget is just like a car has to be tuned up, repaired in every X number of miles similarly our body actually has these rhythms to repair rejuvenate and reset our body and mind in every day and without just like without repairing your car you cannot just drive 200,000 miles similarly without paying attention to our natural rhythms of repair reset and rejuvenation we cannot for, we cannot imagine to be healthy, to have all our organ systems healthy for a long life. So that's why I think this is uh, really the critical time in our human history, to pay attention to these rhythms. And also what is surprising, even I was surprised when we started this study, that how powerful are these rhythms, because just by we'll get into it, but just by changing the timing of food and keeping it within eight to ten hours, we can see nearly half of our genome can turn on and off at the right time. Which is almost like you becoming the master conductor of all your genes. We all blame our genes, often saying that maybe I have a bad gene, that's why I cannot stop eating. Maybe I have a bad gene, that's why I cannot sleep. But the but the fact is by paying attention to a circadian rhythm you can be the master conductor of all of your genes so that you can t- tune up and down all of them to your advantage So I'm super excited about the future prospect of this field because I think that by combining the study of circadian rhythm with other forms of medicine which is very important because you know you can continue, in many cases, your current form of diet, nutrition, nutraceuticals, diabetic medication, or other medications you may be taking, and hopefully combine it with um, circadian optimization, which is paying attention to both sleep and time-restricted eating, and gain benefit in both preventing, managing, and maybe reversing and coming back to full functionality if you are sick.
1: You said in your book that, you know, if you if you uh, have a 12 hour eating window, basically, um, that you get all these benefits, but if you actually um, reduce that, to 10 hours, you get double the benefit. And then if you go to nine hours, double and eight hours double again, is that how it works?
0: I mean, I won't say double. It's a little bit uh, uh, exaggerated there. For some benefits, of course, it will double, and then not for everything. Uh, The point is this: we. So then, the question is how this works, or what is the rationale? Uh, We all know that our brain needs at least seven to eight hours of downtime, so that's why the conventional wisdom is you should be in bed for eight hours, so that you can get seven to seven and a half hours of restful sleep and because during that time our brain goes through repair rejuvenation our synapses are formed and toxins are taken out so just like our brain almost every organ in our body also needs this daily downtime when these organs have to be repaired and rejuvenated so now we might say well if the brain needs only 8 hours why the other organs need at least 12 hours of no food and the point is even though i finish my said dinner at 6 pm my digestion may continue for another 5 or 7 hours so that means my my stomach and digestive system my liver they are not getting that that rest 6 hours or 5 to 6 hours after my dinner which will happen at 11 or midnight so now if you Assume that just like our brain, our organs should also get seven hours of, or eight hours of rest. And you can see that you can add all of these and see that, okay, so if we get 13 to 14 hours of period without food, then that's how we can nurture our organs to have the daily cycles of being at peak performance and also repair, reset, rejuvenate. So in that context, if you eat for 12 hours and then fast for 12 hours, you are still kind of on the borderline of stepping into that repair job. Whereas if you restrict that eating to eight hours, then of course you have much longer time without food and your repair process can be much better. And the way I compare this is uh, like your dental health. So, for example, to have good teeth, you should brush at least once a day, and that's almost like twelve hours of time to eating but if you really have to have good teeth and keep them healthy for a very long time into your old days, you may have to floss you may have to do brush your teeth twice a day and then maybe once in six months or a year you should go and get them cleaned thoroughly by by expert so that's Eight hours time restricted eating. So, this is how we can begin somewhere at least twelve hours, and then um, once a while you can go to eight hours time restricted for a month or two. Or if you can stay on that, then that's even better.
1: There was some uh, early research um, done that's been somewhat replicated about when you fast for too long, you know, 12, 13 hours even that it can actually cause some gallbladder issues and things like that have you run across that research
0: it was not actually intervention research it was a correlation and and this was from enhanced study uh, this is the nutrition health um, um, study that is going on since 70s and right exactly and the point is this in 70s if you look at the first half of 70s uh, what the researchers found was women who were dieting who was not actually fasting for twelve to thirteen hours who were dieting and potentially dieting by not eating at night, they had a slightly high incidence of gallbladder issues okay so now if you ask what is the definition of dieting in seventies 70s? in seventies 70s, the average calorie intake of a typical Adult women in the US was around 1500 to 1600 kilocal. So that means when that person was quote unquote dieting, he or she, she was actually consuming, say, less than 1200 kilocal per day. And so then the question is whether it was due to chronic low calorie intake combined with this long overnight fasting that was causing some increase in gallstone. And it was also on a very small number of individuals. It was less than 300 people. Now, you fast forward and ask, has anybody replicated that in this century? No, because the average caloric intake of an average uh, adult woman in the US has crossed 2000 kilocal, 600 kilocal more than what it was in 70s. So nowadays, even if you quote unquote diet, the calorie intake is still around 12, more than what it was in 70s. So we have to put that in context. What is, particularly in nutrition science, anything that was done before 80s, we have to go back and put that into context. When somebody was saying I was dieting, I was eating something else. And also we got to remember in those days, there are many things that are considered OK, so for example, up to mid-70s, smoking was still socially acceptable. So we don't know what are the interaction of smoking with overnight fasting. Lard was still acceptable form of fat. So um, for all this nutrition-related stuff, we have to put it into time context. Has this study been done in the last decade or two? Because we live in a very different time than how people are living 40 years
1: ago. So you you've, you probably saw just to finish up on that, you probably saw Walter Longo's book, the longevity diet and his research on, mm-hmm. on his uh, fasting mimicking diet that he does. And he talks a lot about not fasting for more than 12 or 13 hours because of that risk. But I guess what you're saying is that there's no current research that links fasting to gallbladder health right or issues absolutely
0: there is no current research and i would challenge people to come up with current research to show that there is any connection and good we cannot use <laughs> studies from 70s uh, which have not been replicated to claim something yeah
1: good so the other thing is like the you know the, the you know what put you know intermittent fasting on the map was the nobel prize winning science of autophagy and fasting how much time do you need to to actually fast your your or time restricted eat to actually get into autophagy cellular repair cellular recycling
0: yeah so um maybe uh, you can define what is intermittent fasting before we get into this
1: Well, you know, that's my question is like, you know, time restricted eating, intermittent fasting, basically sort of the same thing. One is that you're, you're fasting for, you know, 12, 13 hours a day or regular fasting even longer, you know, one day, two day or three days. So I'm curious where the where the line is, where autophagy, all these incredible benefits really kick in. Obviously, you're saying it happens, you know, with 12 hours of not eating basically, right?
0: No. So this is where I wanted to clarify with you. What do you mean by intermittent fasting, or what do you mean by time-restricted eating? Do you mean by intermittent fasting is completely withdrawing food for one, two days in a week?
1: No, no. Intermittent fasting can mean, you know, I think you know, as as many versions of that, I think they're actually thrown in the same pot as what they mean. Time-restricted eating means eating for a period of time and not eating for a period of time. Intermittent fasting could be that, plus it could be also, you know, you know, fasting for a day and then eating for, you know, another day. So I think it kind of depends, but at some point it seems like the autophagy benefits seem to must start with a certain amount of fasting period, whether it be 12 hours or 14 hours or or is there a number there people could shoot for? I mean, obviously, you can't just all of a sudden just eat with it for within eight hours. A lot of people would have a little bit of an issue with that. They have to work up to it. Right.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I must also add that, you know, intermittent fasting did not become popular because autophysic got a Nobel Prize. OK, um, right. Just a correction. OK. Um, <laughs> uh, this time restricted eating or intermittent intermittent fasting was a broad term. If you type intermittent fasting in academic research, it only means one thing: that is not eating for at least one day or more in a week period. But in popular media, time restricted eating has been now synonymous with intermittent fasting, and uh, people think that okay, so if you eat for eight hours and not eat for More the remaining, then that's intermittent fasting. But that's exactly our first time restricted feeding paper is exactly that protocol. So I must clarify this issue that in academic research, intermittent fasting means withdrawing from food or limiting caloric intake. You have to count calorie limited below x number of calories, mostly 800 kilocal or less, for at least one day in a week. So now autophagy. It, this is a you know people always get confused because i would say there is very few papers that have actually shown um, autophagy starts after x number of hours in human liver or human um, muscle or anything and autophagy should not be the only standard because we must we also should keep in mind that excessive autophagy is the is the driving force for many kinds of cancer so we should not think that any autophagy is good because there are many kinds of autophagy that are actually bad, particularly people who have cancer, certain kind of cancer. So um, the point is time eating or what is now popular as intermittent fasting where somebody has to fast for say 14 to 16 hours, um, um, do they produce enough autophagy? What we have done at least since we do a lot of laboratory animal research, we can measure uh, genes that are involved in autophagy and also check uh, some signatures of autophagy. And what we find is at least in mice, and mice eat even for 12 hours, there is some autophagy uh, genes that turn on after uh, eight to 10 hours of fasting. So then the question is, well, is that enough? Um, but I would pose the other question <laughs> that what, we haven't defined what is enough for autophagy. There is no clinical literature that would say you need this amount of autophagy, not this length of fasting to gain some outcomes. And then another thing I got to ask is we haven't connected autophagy with say, the, the diseases that people live with, as I mentioned nearly half of the adults here uh, in the US now live with hypertension. We don't give a hypertensive patient autophagy promoting drug to cure their hypertension. There is no medication that directly targets autophagy that is approved for diabetes or prediabetes. So we have to stay focused on what really affects people. What affects Mm. people Most of us is, and anybody that we know, everybody who is listening, they themselves or they know somebody who is living with diabetes, um, high cholesterol, or hypertension. And what we're finding is this time restricted eating does help. Even when people don't reduce their calorie, total calorie, it does help to improve blood pressure. And in many cases, it helps reverse their pre diabetes. For diabetes, it's a different case because diabetes is a very complicated, wide-spectrum disease. Those who are starting with new type 2 diabetes, that's where time restricted eating or intermittent fasting under the guidance of a health professional can help to manage diabetes much better in combination with current therapy or without current therapy. And those who have more advanced days of diabetes where they're insulin-dependent then they need even much more supervision to practice time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting so i'm sorry I took you away from autophagy yes autophagy sounds very. interesting that there is some recycling and it's definitely is important for system wide whole organ whole body benefits, we do find some signature of autophagy being promoted by even 12 to 14 hours of fasting Um, but. There is very little data from humans. Where autophagy is measured in different organs to connect whether that is clinically significant to improve health.
1: So maybe that's good news for folks where they only have to time restrict their diet, you know, eating within a 12, 10 or 8 hour window and they don't have to fast for a whole day or days and, you know, two or three days to get what they're shooting for, which is these Nobel prize winning benefits of autophagy. And maybe they're chasing something that may actually not exist or may, may even be harmful if you fast for too long. So is that a proper kind of assumption that you can actually do some damage if you fast too long. And what your research is showing that you really only have to stay within that eight to 12 hour window and all the benefits are there. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, I mean, when we think about a lifestyle, so that's why we have to think about what is a lifestyle versus what is an intervention. Lifestyle is something that we do every day. It becomes part of our life that we don't have to even think about it. Your body gets used to it. And- Right. You, you get used to eating within eight, 10 or 12 hours, your body adapts and all these rhythms are tuned down. And this is something that anyone from 10 year old to 100 year old can do eating within 12 hours, at least and then many people can do within 10 hours and some people can do within eight hours and as a lifestyle. And when you think about this long fasting, which is three to four days of reducing extreme reducing calories, those are interventions. Some people can do them once in three months, once in four months or once a month, but those are not your lifestyle. We're talking about lifestyle that you can do every single day. And yes, uh, there are benefits doing fasting for one day, two days. There are many religious fasts that people do and um, those who can do them um, is much better. Um, But those who, are with some existing conditions, for example, type two diabetes or insulin dependent diabetes, doing this long fast may require that you should be wearing a continuous glucose monitor, checking your ketone and should have access to a physician in case something goes wrong.
1: Right, right. So um, many people who time restrict eat or intermittent fast, they call it, you know, their favorite way to do it is they wake up they skip breakfast they say a cup of coffee doesn't actually uh interrupt the fast which i think you would disagree with and then they'll have lunch and they'll have supper and then they'll go to bed so they eat lunch and supper now from the ayurvedic perspective you know breakfast is a really important time of the day and lunch is a really important time of day. and there's a lot of studies that show if you eat the same calories at breakfast and lunch versus lunch and supper that people who eat breakfast and lunch front load the food. They they actually you know lose more weight and their metabolic health is significantly better so talk to us about the science behind why we should have breakfast and how important breakfast is from the circadian clock perspective. Yes,
0: yeah, so I mean uh, the literal definition of breakfast is breaking the fast, so your fast meal is always. The breakfast. <laughs> the point is, okay, so when should you eat after waking up? Um, yeah. So now if we put all of this to, so let's step back and ask, okay, what are the key discoveries in the field of circadian rhythms that will help us frame this question? How should we leave our 24 hours day? When should we eat, sleep, uh, etc. So there are a few things. One is uh, we know that sleep, particularly being in bed for eight hours at consistent time is very important. So let's keep that in mind, being consistent and being in bed for eight hours. Second thing, there is a connection between the nightly hormone melatonin and our metabolism because melatonin is the hormone that rises two to three hours before we go to bed and it stays off throughout the night as long as we sleep, and then after we wake up and we go out, have some exposure to light, whether it's the bright light in your bathroom or you go out, then it takes an hour, two or even slightly more, for that melatonin to go down. What we did not know for up to 10 years ago maybe was melatonin. And uh, just like melatonin makes our brain to sleep, it also makes our pancreas to sleep. So that means um, when melatonin levels are rising or higher, um, that happens two to three hours before going to bed and one to two hours after waking up, um, it reduces the function of pancreas in producing enough insulin in response to glucose. And most of our food has some carbohydrate, doesn't take too much carbohydrate to trigger insulin release so now if we put this together then what comes out of it is we should avoid food for at least 2 to 3 hours before going to bed and we should avoid food for at least one or two hours after waking up so uh, the other thing that came into that people knew for a long time uh, since late 70s but now there is more molecular mechanistic understanding is our pancreas is more efficient in responding to glucose in the first half of our wakeful hours, so that means if someone is waking up at six a m and going to bed at ten p m then maybe till noon or so this uh, our pancreas is really good in producing enough insulin to take care of their glucose stress, which means that we should have our breakfast um and Means a good meal, big size meal, in the first half of the day when our body is prepared to process it. But it should not be too close to waking up. We should not just wake up and have a big breakfast because that's when insulin is also not produced. So that gives us a very narrow, a reasonable window that is after waking up, wait for one or two hours, have a big meal, and then count your eight to 10 hours window. To finish your meal, because your last meal should not be two to three hours before going to bed. So it creates, our body is already designed to have this window of almost 12 hours because eight hours in bed, three hours before bed, no food, one hour after waking up, no food. So that takes away 12 hours. There is also a societal reason why we should not why we should skip the morning meal and uh, just eat uh, big lunch and late dinner. That is, in the western world at least, um, we are more likely to consume more alcohol and after dinner dessert late in night than early in the evening. So if you are early, if you're finishing front loading and finishing early, then inadvertently, Many people can reduce their alcohol intake, their sugar intake from post-dinner dessert. So as a result, we have two reasons: one is biological reasons why we should front-load our calories, and then a societal reason why we should front-load our calories.
1: So. The idea is wake up, and that gives you time to do the, your yoga, breathing, meditation, yeah. exercise. Yeah. Two hours later, have your meal, yeah. and then from there starts your eight to ten to twelve hour eating window, whatever whatever it is, right?
0: Yeah, and then that window should end two to three hours before bedtime, so you have your body has time to wind down and digest food before you go to bed. And that's also to the time to uh, kind of uh, relax. So uh, now let's come back, put all of this together, and then we'll come up with six basic rules, or basic uh, ways we can organize our day. And I always say that our day starts from the time we went to bed last night, because when we went to bed and how long we stayed in bed decides how a lot and energetic we are in the morning. So rule number one would be go to bed at a consistent time every night and then be in bed for eight hours because these eight hours in bed will give you seven to seven and a half hours of restorative sleep. And that's when growth hormone is produced and your many stomach lining and many organs are repaired. So that's very important. The number two is after waking up, Wait for at least an hour or two before your first meal, because by waiting for this one or two hours, and as you mentioned, this is the time when you can do your yoga pranayam, uh, exercise. Um, you are slowly allowing your body all the organ systems to wake up and synchronize themselves, if possible, if you're doing it outdoor or if you're having some exposure to light that will also synchronize your brain clock during that one to 12 hours wet time. And the number three, which is most important is starting from your breakfast count 8, ten or maximum 12 hours, within which you should consume all your calories. Of course, um, water is permitted outside this window. And there are many studies showing that this 8 to 10 hours eating and rest fasting has numerous health benefits for preventing, managing or reversing chronic disease. The number four is don't forget exercise. Um, At least if you're pressed for time, then afternoon exercise is much better because that's when our muscles are better prepared to exercise, and also we have low risk for injury from exercise. So. Even brisk walking, and there are studies that are showing that the same exercise done in the evening is more effective in reducing blood sugar than the exercise in the morning. And there are many studies coming out along that line. And it makes sense because our ancestral hunter gatherers used to run back home at the end of the day to stay away from predators and come back home. So we are designed to have that high burst of exercise or physical activity in the late afternoon or evening. And then another fifth rule is to be outdoor for 30, to 30 minutes to an hour every day, because daylight, this is another big discovery from our lab over the last 20 years is daylight, particularly the blue spectrum of light, which is rich in sunlight is the most Important to synchronize our brain circadian clock. It's also very important to reduce depression and improve alertness and brain function. And as you know, daylight is plentiful and free is the best antidepressant, then why not to step outside for 30 minutes? So that's why I said in the morning, if you can do your yoga pranayama or any activities outdoor, then you get double benefit. And then number six is, at least two to three hours before bedtime, avoid food and avoid bright light because bright light can disrupt sleep and will be very difficult to fall asleep. So by following these five or six simple rules, you can synchronize your circadian clock and be in rhythm. And um, most importantly, you'll be the master conductor of your own genes and organ systems. And there are many Clinical studies, epidemiological studies, and preclinical animal studies showing benefits of each of these six different roles or combination of roles um, are beneficial for a long, healthy life.
1: And what about the, the size of the meal? Um, you know, in Ayurveda and traditionally around the world, people have their bigger meal at lunchtime, that's the, the main meal of the day, and a lighter supper, soup like supplemental meal in the evening. What's your take on that from your research?
0: Yeah, we haven't done much research on the meal size, particularly lunch and dinner, supper. Uh, But there are other uh, researchers in the field who have done many studies. And what they're finding is, you know, bigger meal in the first half of the day helps. Now, this is where, again, context matters, because, you know, until industrial revolution. People just could not get up and open their refrigerator and pull out a big breakfast. People had to wake up and then maybe find a little bit of food to keep going. And then people would light a fire or cook something. So that's why the lunch used to be uh, the biggest meal um, for practical reason. At the same time, the lunch was also in the first half of the day. People are not eating lunch after 3 p.m., so uh, I think it makes sense that if you have your big meal in the first half of the day, then you um, may be better off because that's what also people are finding in research that although they don't they don't vary breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what people do is they measure how much is in the breakfast and relative to dinner time. And they all come back to the same conclusion that more calories in the first half of the day is more beneficial. And what is interesting is we have been doing these studies on free-living humans where they use this app called My Circadian Clock. And what we found was um, we actually considered the day to begin at 4 (laughs) a.m., which is (laughs) <laughs> aligned with Ayurveda, and it's actually based on evidence also because what we did, we asked people to log all their food, drinks, beverages, and what we found was 4 a.m. is the is the lowest time when people are eating. So then we thought, okay, 4 a.m., we'll start from 4 a.m. What we found is from between 4 a.m. and 12 noon, people consume less than 20%, 25% of that daily caloric intake. Hmm. But between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., in those three hours, people mm-hmm. consume 35 plus percent of that daily calorie intake. So right now, our default lifestyle is to eat more calories in the evening than in the first eight hours of the day. So that's something that we have to pay attention to, to kind of switch that to see whether we can combine our lunch and breakfast in a way that we consume yeah. more calories when our body is rhythm are uh, more aligned, more tuned to digest, properly digest and absorb nutrients from what we eat.
1: Yeah, no, um, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm curious what your take is about You know, the one of the indicators of prediabetes is, is fasting, blood sugars being a little bit too high. There's a natural phenomenon in the morning after 4, 4 a.m. in the morning for the Blood sugars to naturally rise anyway and i'm wondering for a lot of folks who are on that pre-diabetic hub is the best thing for them to do is you know what's the best way for them to handle that higher normal blood you know within normal range maybe the high 90s or maybe the low 100s what's the best way to handle that from your perspective
0: yeah it's a very difficult question because you know the dawn phenomena that's what it is called um it's actually present in not all pre diabetics, some pre diabetic. And there is not much research done in that to see how um, to manage it. And another, again, we should put that into context in the sense only in recent years when people started using continuous glucose monitor, we have come to understand that there are a lot more people who have this dawn phenomena than before. So hopefully in the next few years, what will mm. Um, try to achieve is to see how to manage that dawn phenomena by because that's when your liver is assuming that okay so you run out of glycogen and um, sorry you run out of other fuels so maybe the liver is producing some glucose uh, to keep your brain going Uh, and we know that the molecular mechanism that does that uh, we understand that how it happens but what triggers it, we don't really know. And you know there are certain things that we, in science, this is what we do. Uh, Sometimes we have to be humble and say, we know it happens, but I cannot put a finger and say, this is why it happens and this is how you can control it. So this is where I'll say, I'm sorry, I should have known, we don't know yet.
1: (laughs) So would it be safe to, to say or that if someone's a1c which is their average glucose a measure of glycation right which is the smoking gun of degeneration yeah if that number is really low low fives or even high fours very very low but their morning glucose tends to be based on a a dawn phenomena a little bit on the higher side would that be of concern
0: yeah i think uh, so here again HBA one c um may not be gold standard for everybody because people who are on special diet or those who have certain blood disease um, they can have an artificially low hemoglobin A1c um, For example there are certain diseases where the hemoglobin is recycled much faster than average person and those who go back and forth between high elevation and low elevation they will have. Um, So that's why I think people have to do three different things. One is HbA1c, one is morning fasting, and also postprandial glucose. Because if someone's postprandial glucose shoots up too high and then comes down, then it's possible that that transient increase of blood glucose to very high can cause damage. Just imagine if that is sure. you are living next to a river bank and then the river just goes over even for 10 minutes that causes more damage than maintaining a high average level
1: yeah so let's say that the the two hour postprandials are really really good you know below 120 yeah. 110 a healthy person a1c very low but they still wake up with the morning high numbers but there and this happens with a lot of my patients i see it and i go wow you know i don't know if we should chase that morning number that much when when your post are good, your A1Cs are good, basically healthy person. So I'm just curious if that's something that, in your book, your diabetes book, if that's come up.
0: Yeah, so what we say is, you know, the last meal um, determines last meal and last exercise that we do can have an impact on our overnight blood glucose. Right. So if we have some high fiber diet, at nighttime that can actually help the body to think that the body is not going through a glucose crisis that the liver has to produce more glucose. So that's right. one strategy that we uh, kind of recommend because we know that, you know, if you look at the typical American diet or Western diet, there is not much fiber. And we don't like right. to eat fiber, and the more and more I look at through the, from the my circadian clock app, we can actually see what people are eating, uh, and it's really mind-boggling and shocking how little fiber people have in that diet, and particularly before the dinner has so little fiber. So, this is something that we um, strongly recommend that people should. And you know, when you increase fiber, you are doing way more than just nurturing your body. It nurtures the gut microbiome. It helps you have good bowel movement and when our gut microbiome and bowel movement is improved since the gut and the bowel are connected there's now gut brain axis and gut muscle gut liver all kinds of axis then there is also general improvement in health so this can be one approach to manage the morning spike Another one to keep in mind is, um, some people may watch whether they, are, they have sleep apnea because those who snore or they know that they have sleep apnea, that can also create a fight or flight kind of response, and that may trigger blood glucose rise. So managing your sleep apnea may also help.
1: So I wanna kind of finish up with talking a little bit about melatonin, you know, in the winter time, which is I think a great example the sun, depending on where you live, might set at five o'clock. People go to bed at 11 o'clock. When the sun sets, the melatonin starts to increase, right? So there's five, six hours of melatonin because people are in their house watching TV that they're not getting because of the light exposure. And then, then, um, so we're missing out on six hours of melatonin production which is a you know not just a sleep hormone it's actually a detoxifying rebuild repair rejuvenate kind of reset your circadian your rhythms with your biological clocks that's what's trying to happen right you're trying isn't that what melatonin is trying to do is to reconnect those rhythms so they function go off and on at the right time so how do you handle that obviously you know you said melatonin go you know starts to uh, increase 2 to 3 to 4 hours before you go to bed but does that happen when the lights are on? And if your lights are on and you have this melatonin you know, uh, deficiency, you could say, which happens even as you age, people move, produce less melatonin as they age, do you believe in using melatonin to hack the aging process with something? One of the research, uh, Al Louie, the melatonin researcher, did research on low-dose melatonin and using very small amount of melatonin to hack the aging process, or more possibly for a period of time to reset the circadian clock, or to mitigate the fact that you're up watching TV till 11 o'clock at night, and you're not producing melatonin for those really important six hours. What do you, what do you how do you look at melatonin from a, from a supplemental perspective?
0: Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, melatonin is one hormone that is not uh, regulated in the US. So, right. <laughs> which means that you can take a ton of melatonin, it will not kill you. And uh, it also means that um, the men- means there is not too much impact of melatonin on organ system. The reason is um, a lot of the melatonin that we take is quickly degraded or metabolized by our liver. So within 15 to 20 minutes of take, popping that melatonin pill, our body is clearing a lot of it. But still, there is a substantial amount that stays. Now, what we know from melatonin research, the impact of light on melatonin production and the connection between melatonin and um, pancreas function, et cetera. uh, I think a few things that we can take away. That is, um, try to avoid bright light two to three hours before going to bed. Um, When we say bright light, um, it can be in your house. Particularly now, people are trying to change their light bulb and going for the LED lights. It's okay to go for that LED light, but try to get the orange sifted LED because you get three different colors. So instead of looking for the blue sifted, which makes you more happy, go for the orange sifted. And if you can, try indirect light. So for example, for reading, you don't have to have light falling on your eyes. So that's why we used to have table lamp or working light. So um, managing light is a very important part of Managing melatonin, avoid going to grocery stores, drugstores later at night because all of them are super bright. They reduce your uh, brightness of the TV and also your iPad and tablet, phone, etc. So that's one aspect. Second is if you're trying to take melatonin supplement, um, uh, the first thing is, yes, any melatonin supplement is, may work better than none. Uh, But at the same time, uh, unfortunately, since it's not regulated in the U.S., uh, many melatonin supplement may have other things in it. So go for a good brand which is certified by various certifying agencies. And then if you're taking melatonin as melatonin affects blood glucose regulation, try to have melatonin at least couple of hours after your meal, after your last meal. And that's very important. Just after finishing your dinner, don't pop your melatonin pill. You're essentially telling your pancreas, hey, stop working. (laughs) That can potentially increase blood sugar. So then it comes down to a very manageable two or three rules. That is, one is avoid bright light. And if you have to take melatonin, then try to take a couple of hours after your dinner. And we also are observing that different people have different sensitivity for melatonin. Some people for can sure. get away with one to two milligram melatonin; they find they'll sleep well, and some may need up to five milligrams. Although some studies on cancer prevention were done at five to fifteen milligram. Um, some may find it too much because they will kind of have a brain fog or hangover or they may find sleepy the next day so uh personally for example when i have to take melatonin i always titrate i start with breaking the pill to one approximately one meg equivalent and see oh does it work and also a lot of people instead of try to uh do, uh, sorry, try melatonin when you're traveling because any time you're traveling, don't try a new supplement or new drug because you may be in a different time zone, your body will react differently. So if you're trying melatonin, try it when you're in the stable uh, lifestyle. So these are some of my take on melatonin. I cannot um, say specifically what are the benefits or how much benefits that should expect because it all depend on. But most people take melatonin for sleep and for sleep. These are some of, the, some of my opinions.
1: So, um, Dr. Panda, tell us a little bit about your app, the My Circadian Clock app. How does that work? Is it for everybody? Yeah. You know, how can people get involved?
0: Yeah. So this is uh, an app we developed almost six years ago. It's an academic app. Uh, so that means there is no advertisement there is, and we it's under our IRB. So people who use it, um, they just log their daily food um, and there is optional entry for your sleep. The reason is this, just like um, when we want to look good, we stand in front of a mirror and check ourselves. Similarly, if we track when and what we are eating, we can potentially improve that. So the first, so anybody can go to this um, website or can download the app on iOS or Android device. It will ask you a few questions. And we, um, we securely store your data. It's not shared with any commercial entity. We use it only for research. And after two weeks, you can try to... The first two weeks, we want to see how your current lifestyle is because that helps us to understand what is the current lifestyle of adults um, in the US or globally, anywhere in the world. And then after two weeks, you can self-select how to, uh, whether you want to eat within eight, 10, 12 hours, et cetera. The website, my circadian clock also has a lot of blogs about uh, circadian rhythm, time-restricted eating, etc. And when you sign up, there'll be also daily nudges and daily information centered around circadian rhythm timing of food sleep and exercise and how it impacts your health and thousands tens of thousands of people from all over the world have shared their data and i'm really greatly thankful for that because you know there are numerous apps in the world but we as researchers don't have access to many of those data Um, and when you use this app uh, you are actually doing a great service because just put it into this context. We know that there are clinical trials, where there may be 500 people in a clinical trial, and we get the result, and that result is used in medical standard to treat people, millions of people around the world. So that means those 500 people who participated and carefully followed all the instructions or shared their data, uh, they actually did a huge service to mankind not only their peers, for generations to come, uh, because they help researchers to understand human biology, physiology, and how habits change. So similarly, these few thousand people on our app who share their data, share their experience, actually are helping us to change, to design better clinical trials and also get that data and disseminate to others to see how people can improve their health. One caveat don't is... Think yeah, one caveat is, just it's say, not, yeah,
1: go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, there's no better reason to, do, to join your app than to actually be of service to helping others, there's just no better reason for that. But I'm curious, along the way, do folks get information about you know, the results of the study? Are they privy to that kind of ahead of time? Is that something that they, that they get uh, kind of information about you know, some of the current research along the way?
0: Yeah, so uh, we are now putting a list of ongoing st- because, as I said, there are open apps that anyone can use, and then there are very focused clinical trials. So, for example, we published one study in 2019 showing they all use the app, and that's how they followed time-restricted eating of 10 hours. And that led to improvement in cardiometabolic health among people who had metabolic syndrome. So, that means these people. Had at least three out of five criteria for metabolic syndrome that includes obesity, abdominal obesity and high blood sugar, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, etc. So what we found is even though some of them were taking medication and those were not taking medication, if they combined that with 10 hours Mm time-restricted eating as they practiced it through the app, uh, they could improve their health. There was a pilot study with less than 20 people. uh, And then in parallel, we have published quite a few other studies in collaboration with other clinicians um, on obesity, pre-diabetes. And we have another randomized control trial ongoing on metabolic syndrome. And also a study with firefighters, because as I said, um, nearly 20% of the working adults in the Western world, they work. Shift work, so that means they are going through night shift and day shift, or some of them do 24-hour shift, and we're testing whether these these people who chronically disrupt their sleep and circadian rhythm, can they practice 10 hours time restricted eating, and if they do, does it improve their health? So these are some of the parallel studies which uh, get published um, and the results from these studies using the app are being published almost in every two to three months. Uh, so we'll soon post all the study results on, the, on our website.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. Well, I encourage everybody to, to download the app. The My Circadian Clock is the name of the app. It's free, right? And, uh, Anyone can get it, and I also highly recommend you all pick up this book, The Circadian Code. And when is your new book on diabetes coming out?
0: Uh, this came out in mid-November, so maybe I'll send you a copy. I'll ask my publisher to send you a okay, copy. Okay, that'd be
1: great. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll let people know about that as well, for sure. Well, Dr. Panda, thank you so much for your work. It's, it's, it's so brilliant and so enlightening for all of us. I really appreciate your time, and hopefully we'll have you back with the second book.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on your show and have a perfect circadian day.
1: Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Take care. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.